Father God, you are so good. You are everything we're looking for. In this place right now, we gather, we have needs. There's something we probably came for today, not even knowing what it was. All week, many of us have tried to survive off the scraps of the world in which we live. We have sought our own kingdom so often. We have sought our own thing so much. And Lord God, there is no answer there. We know it in our minds, but our hearts struggle. I ask you, Lord God, that you help us to learn to seek the kingdom, to develop the attitudes critical to finding the kingdom. I pray that you awaken our hearts and open our eyes. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good morning, everyone. Is everyone okay today? You guys are... I don't know, I, I, got a, I got a vibe of seriousness as I was coming down there, and I'm like, I don't know, they, they seem grumpy today. We'll find out. I'm going to stir up trouble either way, it's okay, I'm not scared of you. I'm scared of my wife, but not you. So uh, I have never flown a plane, because I don't want to die, uh, but I've never flown a plane. But I know and have read that planes have an attitude meter, an attitude meter. I think it used to be called the gyroscope or something like that, or a gyrometer or something. And what the attitude meter does is it tells you the, um, the relation and direction of the plane in relation to the horizon. So it, it tells you like if you're going up or down or east or west or north, you know, left or right, whatever it is. It, it gives you that in relation to that. So when we come to Jesus' teachings on attitude, I, I've often wondered, why are they called the Beatitudes? And then we talk about things like poverty last week and hunger this week. Uh, why, why do we call them attitudes? And maybe it will help you understand the reason we call them attitudes is they give us our direction and our navigation in relation to our horizon. These attitudes tell us if we're going up or down, left or right, toward or away from our goal and our purpose in life. Does that make sense? So today we're talking about hunger as an attitude. Hunger as an attitude. Now, I mean, we're like Americans. We're Westerners. I don't even know if we know what it's like to be hungry. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, I have never gone more than 20 minutes without eating something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm on that, they, you know, I'm on that slow burn diet plan, which just means I never stop eating and just get larger and larger and larger. But Jesus says, well, my wife says I have to stop insulting myself. But anyway, I'm really harassing the inner me somehow. I don't know. So Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Say satisfied. satisfied. Doesn't that roll off the tongue? It, it's kind of like something we want. It's like peace. When you say peace, it's one of those things you, you want. Satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses those who hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Now, we're using uh, Jesus' sermons as, uh, out of Matthew 5 and Luke 5, 
Matthew 6. Anyway, out of those passages, we're hearing Matthew's account of which obviously Matthew took notes and Luke didn't. It's my theory. Um, We're hearing Matthew's account on what the the things that Jesus repeatedly taught. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, this wasn't one sermon. This was like the message of Jesus' ministry. Well, when you come to Luke, Luke's account, giving us an account from it from his perspective, from what he's gathered from the witnesses around. And so what you need to understand is Jesus didn't just talk about this once. He talked about it a lot. These are the repeated messages that Jesus shared. And so out of this, Jesus teaches us. Last week, he talked about poverty. Today, we're talking about hunger. He says, blessed are those who are hungry for righteousness or hungry for justice, for they'll be satisfied. Now, Luke adds some sorrow text with it that Matthew does. Doesn't include. I think at, Matthew was the positive attitude one, and Luke was Greek. And so, um, Luke six twenty five. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now? Yes, I'm feeling self conscious. For a time of awful hunger awaits you. So I want us to connect with this idea of hunger, but I want us to. What I really want for myself and for you is to be hungry for the right things. I think we're already hungry. We just don't know what we're hungry for. I mean, you, you ever like that? You, you, you like, maybe you're already thinking about lunch today and you should give up that dream. But um, <sighs> just messing with you. Um, maybe you're already thinking about what do I, what am I hungry for for lunch? Well, what is your soul hungry for is the question that Jesus is dealing with. What, what is your heart hungry for? That's where, where we begin. And on April 15th, 1945, Japan uh, uh, surrendered in the war. Now, it's not made official. Victory Japan Day isn't actually until September 2nd. But they, they, uh, they surrendered August 15th and then had to wait to get the official paper signed. When that surrender happened, the United States had 20, over 27,000 servicemen that were taken as prisoners of war in the Pacific Theater. 40% of them died in captivity from starvation, jungle disease, and the Japan's cruel transportation systems on ships that the GIs called hell ships. Uh, Japan was not a signer of the Geneva Convention, did not hold to it. So all of our Pacific soldiers were without the protection of the prisoners of war provided in the Geneva Convention. So when they surrendered, America had a problem. We had tens of thousands of soldiers still in captivity. We weren't even quite sure where they were, and they were starving to death. Uh, to, to give you an example of how much so, when a, a soldier out of New England, Leonard Berthoud, when he was captured, he was, in, he was a prisoner of war for 40 months, almost the entire length that we were in the war. When he, when he was captured, he weighed 160 pounds. When he was rescued, he weighed 80 pounds. Uh, World War II gave us such a, a detailed study of long-term starvation on the human body that we never wanted. But nonetheless, that's what happened. So there was this huge 
rescue mission that had to take place to get these soldiers home. And so that's what happened. The Air Force, in coordination with all the other branches, began to fly in missions to find these camps. There were 775 of them throughout uh, the Pacific Theater, 128 in Japan, to find these camps, to airdrop food and supplies into them and let them know that the war was over, and then to get them out of those places. One of the greatest rescue missions in the history of the United States of America to rescue these some uh, not quite 20,000 soldiers that were left. 11,000 soldiers passed in their captivity under Japan's assault and under the war. That's one form of starvation. In In the 1990s, a nationwide survey was done about obesity. And there wasn't a single state in the United States that reported an obesity rate above 15%. This was in the 90s. Today... 70% of Americans are either overweight or obese in a mere 25 years. That's a different kind of hunger. Sometimes you're hungry for something that you want, you can't get it, so you eat something else instead. And when what you consume is not satisfying, it always takes way more of it to accomplish nothing. Hunger. We're more familiar with it than we realize, is my point. And so today, as we drive into this idea of what it means to be hungry and how we should be hungry for different and larger things, we need to ask ourselves, when Jesus said, blessed are the hungry, what did he want us to do with that? How did he want us to use our hunger and live it as an attitude that draws us upward to our Father and into the Father's kingdom rather than something that draws us into ourselves and more deeply connects us to the earth that is corrupted yet that we live on. So the Bible tells us this. Jesus says in Matthew, when he speaks about these attitudes and how they play out for your life, here's some things I would, I would like to do in my own life and want to share with you how we progress in this attitude of hunger. And I would suggest first that what we do is we learn what it means to shine, learn to shine. And I don't mean that as quaint as it sounds. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Pause. You're not trying to be the salt of the earth. You're not trying to figure out what it means to be the salt of the earth. You are something. You exist as this thing. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, or they burn their house down. Instead... A lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, you are the salt. You are the light in the same way. Connect these ideas. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise you. Oh, no, I misread that. Your heavenly Father. Everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The world you live in is dying. It's fading. It's less and less every day. There's less there for you. And you'll find as you pursue Jesus and you seek the kingdom first, you will find that this world has less of a hold upon you. So what we need to understand is some things that we are. 
and we are salt. Some of you more salty than others. <laughs> what do I mean? Well, today we have very, we have refined processes of coming up with salt. And, and so today, the salt we have is, is salt. You know, it's, it's pretty salty. It wasn't that way when Jesus said these words. They didn't have the refining processes available to them. So you could literally wash the salt out of things that were sold and given as salt. Salt was so valuable in that time that Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. And so here's Jesus turning to salt, telling you if it becomes worthless, what are you going to do with it? Just throw it out. And so there was a way that he was thinking that salt could be washed out of the things that looked like salt. It could look like salt but not actually have any saltiness to it. Today it's a little different. Salt can only be diluted today. Because it's, it's, the refining processes are so much better. So the reality is, guys, we are salt. And as Christians, one of the main things that we have to wrap our heads around is our identity. Who we are. What we really are. You and I, you know, we think we're walking through life just getting by. And basically we're ourselves and we're in charge of our own life and, and so forth. But that's, that's not true. We are something far more significant than that. You are a son of God. The bride of Christ walking on this earth. You are something that matters. You are salt in this world. And salt does things. Salt preserves things. Salt improves things. Salt makes things more real and tasteful. You, you are here to do something in this world, which I'll come back to this idea of doing. But you're, 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 you're salt and you're light the world's a dark place. Hang on, I want to make sure I don't get ahead of myself. Okay, I'm probably going to do that anyway. So, you live in a dark world. So in this world that's dim and dingy, you are vibrant. You are light. You are real. You are something significant. And you need to understand that every situation you exist within, every place you go, you are significant in that place. You are vibrant in every moment in which you inhabit. Why? Because you're awesome? You are awesome. But because Jesus made you awesome. Because you've been born again as a redeemed son or daughter of the King Most High. That's what makes you awesome. Not your own efforts. So, we make, this means something real for us. It means that, it means that we make different choices. Because we are different. In a world that's bland, we're a seasoning. In the world that's rotting. And it, isn't that kind of the way the world is? As soon as something good happens, it immediately begins to rot, deteriorate, become less, fade. In a world that's all of that, you and I are salt and light. That means we do things differently. Uh, so when Chris and I were young... And now, she is still young, but I have gotten older. It's very difficult growing old alone. <laughs> we, when, when God got a hold of me, in, when I was in my early 20s, our life drastically and radically changed. See, for a season in my life, I'm like, I was kind of mad at God. He didn't do what I expected. You ever get mad at God because he doesn't do what you expected? And by the way, I'll just throw this out for free. I didn't like church people a whole lot back then either. 
So, um, and when I saw someone like me coming, I hid. I did not want to talk to someone like me. But my point is, when you're like, oh, he has one. Um, when God got a hold of me, my life changed. And Chris and I began to make different decisions. Those were not popular decisions, a lot of them. We chose to do things differently, live our life differently. We adopted different habits, different methods about everything. Our finances, the way we parented our children, the way we approached our marriage, the way we approached friendships, the way we approached church. Everything changed. It was different. People don't like different. Some people do. Some people are like, oh, it's a novelty. Most people don't. And so our life was different. That's what it means to be salt and light. As a follower of Jesus, you make different choices. When, when, when someone gives you a reason to hate them, you bless them. When someone persecutes you, you love them. When someone's in need, you step up and you help them. You do things differently. And if I were you, I'd be sitting there right now going, but Michael, that's really hard. Let me update you on something. It's actually impossible. God is not the God of the possible. Our Father is the Father of the impossible. So when, when we follow Him, we're going to be doing impossible things and we're going to be misunderstood. You can't help it because it's who you are. You are salt and you are light and if no one has a problem with the way you're living your life, you're probably doing it wrong. Ouch. So we have to learn to shine. Now, Jesus did something that makes us all very nervous, and that is this. This is how Jesus moves us from religion to real righteousness. Because he doesn't just talk about things you should think and rituals you should perform. He talks about ways that you should actually live. Jesus teaches us to do things. And so when you read Jesus talking about being salt and light, he says, hey, he comes up to the end of him and says, the things you do, it's the things you do that are going to demonstrate that you're salt and that you're light, and they're going to bring glory to your heavenly Father. That's how Jesus thought. He connected that salt and light to our actual actions in our life, to the things that we do and minister and how that we act out. So then our lives will be different. And they must be, because that's who we are. And this is what it means to learn to shine. It's learning who you are. It's learning what to do. And learning that all of this is to display something. And this is where the, the mental shifting, the attitude comes in. Because when I am salt, I'm light. When I make different choices, when I do different things, and I, I do good in a world that is bad and is broken, when I bring light in a world that is dim and dingy, when I do all this, I am displaying the goodness, the good, say goodness, goodness. of my Father. Do you know that God is good? I mean, I, if you're here and you're like, I don't know, he, I'm, still, I'm still waiting to see. I've, I've got a few tests out to see if he's good. I want to encourage you to start at a different place. I want to encourage you to start at the simple truth that God is good. And then if you start at the simple truth that God is good, you'll begin to see God's goodness everywhere around you. Why? Because it's your attitude. It's what you're looking for. 
And you're, this is actually something we hunger for. We are hungry to discover, experience, and share the goodness of the Father. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I, I, I wish, I want the church as a whole in America, the, especially the evangelical church and all its many flavors, to grasp this message. It is the goodness of God, not the guilt of God. There is no guilt of God. There is redemption of God. There is restoration of God. But we always have this idea in our head that if we make people guilty enough, they will turn to Jesus. I'm here to tell you people are already living under a weight of guilt that they have no idea how to alleviate. And that's why Jesus gave us this message. That's why he wanted us to live as salt and light in the world. If you and I live as people who are free of our guilt and shame, you will shine no matter what you do. You understand that, right? And that's the hope that I know that everyone needs and a lot of the church needs. <laughs> so learn to shine. This is, this is where we begin with our hunger, learning what it means to shine. Second, learning to love God's ways. God is weird. I don't get God. And uh, what, there's a Christian comedian, I can't remember his name all of a sudden. He used to say, Brad Stein, that's who it was. He used to say, I don't want a God that I can understand. Right. Think, about, think about that for a minute. A God you can understand would be, uh, I don't know, yeah. Thank you, that's exactly it. You, don't misunderstand why I've come. Now here's Jesus. And man, we need to grasp this. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose then he goes on to say i tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear not even the smallest detail of god's law will disappear until its purpose has been achieved so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but anyone who obeys god's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven but i warn you Jesus had warnings. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the law of God, the grace of God, these ideas in their, in their pull, their tension against each other, they, they kind of confuse us sometimes. But what I, I want you to do is I, what this hunger that we have, and one of the things that satisfies it, is realizing that God's ways are superior and realizing that God is more than we can imagine. That God is, that there's more to God than, than our human minds can pull out. So let's think about just for a second the purpose of, of the law. Most people in the world today have this idea that God is the legalist. It's, it's, uh, Satan has an entire PR team on helping everyone believe that God's the legalist. He's not. By the way, do you know what a legalist is? A legalist is someone who is trying to legally figure out how to break the law. I hope there's no lawyers in the house. <sighs> You know, I, I did that. We had a lawyer one Sunday a few years ago, and I made a lawyer joke, didn't know he was here, and he hasn't been back. And so uh, <laughs> i got to be careful. There's a purpose for God's law. There's a purpose for God's law. Just like a parent has rules in their house that have a purpose, even though the child doesn't understand the purpose of the rules. 
there's a purpose in God's law. One of the purposes is that um, God's law, the Bible says in Galatians, Paul called it, a, he said, the law is like a schoolmaster. Now, I don't know that we can grasp the schoolmaster concept today uh, as, as they could have years ago. I mean, the old ideas of a schoolmaster were someone whopped you with a ruler, that kind of, that kind of schoolmaster. Not, not like a teacher, a little bit more than that. Someone who was able to exercise punitive measures. But anyway, the law is a schoolmaster. So one of the purposes of the law is to protect the stupid. I mean, to protect the ignorant. <laughs> They're just things we don't know. Don't understand about how the universe works, how things, are, how things work in God's kingdom, or even in the world in which we live. And so the law teaches us what we can't do. As soon as you hear a law, okay, let me, make, let me bring this home. Husbands, let me talk to husbands just for a second. As soon as your wife says, they go, oh no, this is going to hurt. You should do this. What is the last thing you're going to do? This. Why? It felt like a law. Just felt like it. She, it doesn't matter how nice she is. Wives, just say, you know what I would love? Just do that. You know what I would love? Uh, but don't follow up with you to fix yourself. Don't do that. But uh, something, something that way. So the law is there to, to protect us and keep us in, on a safer path until it delivers us to Christ. The purpose of the law is not righteousness. The purpose of the law is to convict us of a crime. Rebellion against God. That's its purpose. And the more you get into uh, God's law, the more you think about it. You see, the Bible does not see human beings as inherently good people. We live in a world that's got that message out there all the time. If people just have enough food and money and shelter and, and distractions, they're basically good. Well, we've had decades of food, money, distractions, wealth, affluence. How are we doing? Doesn't seem like it's turning out that well. What's the problem? Us. We're corrupted. Mankind is corrupted by a, a rebellion of our first father, Adam. A rejection of being God and a choice to become God. So, I talk to people all the time that are like, well, listen, I'm, I'm a good person. When I was younger, I would jump on that like, man, a fly on stink, if you know. Anyway, I don't, sorry, my southern just crawled out my mouth. It happens sometimes. We have so many colloquialisms where I come from, and many of them are not pleasant, but still. Many people think that they are good people. Have you ever told a lie? Hey, how does this dress look on me, honey? It looks great. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I gotta talk to my wife. We gotta have a little discussion here. Tell me the truth of what's going on inside of you right now. Anyway, so. You ever stolen anything on your taxes? <laughs> uh, on the job? That coffee break that was supposed to be 30 minutes or 15 or 10 and turned into all afternoon? Um, have you ever lusted? 
for someone who wasn't your wife than one you're married to right now. Good people are not liars. Good people are not thieves. Good people are not adulterers. So stop saying you're good. There's only one that's good. And his name is Jesus. And he died on a cross because we're not good. And only bad people can be saved. Only bad people can be saved. So it's okay to be bad. It's not okay to stay bad. This is just the way things are. And this is the law's purpose. One of the law's purposes in our life. So if we can take God's purpose of the law and know what it is, and there are other purposes as well, but I have to get this sermon done in less than five hours. Um, I just like that nervous laughter. I'm sorry. I know it's an old joke, but I have to keep doing it. And if we could focus on God's ways, if we could focus on God's ways, a lot of Christians are afraid, literally afraid, to read the Old Testament and Revelation. They're just like, God's so scary back there. And God is only scary in the Old Testament because of our lenses, not because of God's actions. What do you mean, Michael? God literally told Adam and Eve. By the way, many people think that God gave Adam and Eve a choice in the Garden of Eden. That is incorrect. God did not say, all right, you choose. God never said that. God said, see this tree? No. Uh Uh-uh. Okay? That's what he said. So Adam and Eve's rebellion stands out very starkly against that. God didn't give them a choice. He gave them a command that they rejected, okay? But in that command, he said, you eat this tree, you die. They ate of the tree. What happened? An animal died. A sheep or something was killed to clothe them. You say, God's harsh. The one command he gave them, they broke it defiantly. And rather than them dying at the end of the day, something else dies at the end of the day. After that, the whole world goes rotten. Sin is entered. The corrupting nature of sin presents and people go bad. The whole, all of creation is spoiled. And God says, that's it, I'm done. I'm wiping them off the face of the earth. And that's what should have happened. Everyone should have died. But that's not what happened. Noah and his family were spared. And God gave everyone else over a hundred years, over a hundred years to change their minds about God. Now, is that the wrath of God or is that the mercy of God? Over and over again, Sodom and Gomorrah, we are so fam- we're, we want to bring that up all the time. I'm seeing Christians post it on social media all the time. Man, if, if, if we were doing the thing, I mean, if the things we're doing today are the things Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for. And that is true. But do you see the mercy in Sodom and Gomorrah? Because Lot and his family escaped. Now, is that the wrath of God or is it the mercy of God? What I'm trying to tell you is, is that God is a merciful and a patient God. And never, never in the history of the world to this point have we seen the full measure of God's wrath with the exception of the cross of Jesus Christ. God has always held back. God is a merciful God. That is God's way. So the next time you hear someone 
You don't have to correct them. But the next time you hear someone judge God as harsh, realize you're talking to someone who is ignorant of who God really is. A God who has demonstrated over and over and over again that he's a God of mercy and that his righteousness is required, but his mercy is his choice. Does that make sense? So then, Jesus takes these ideas of salt and light, um, ideas of, um, of righteousness, and he, he, he gives us this, the, the law of God and how he fulfills it. And then he tells us that your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, or you're not getting the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and when you look at Jesus and how he dealt with people in the New Testament, it seems to me like that the people he dealt with the most harshly were his own people. And they were the spiritual, supposed to be the spiritual leaders of those people. They had spiritual authority that they were using for selfish ends. And so Jesus nailed them to the wall. Rome, he had very little to say to. Very interesting to me. The, the political climate of the world, it's like Jesus didn't care. Jesus says, no, nah, this all stinks. I'm going to establish an entirely new kingdom. That's the attitude I think I see in Jesus. And so, Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed this righteousness that's that of looks. We need to remember this. How much money someone has is not a statement of the blessing of God upon their life. Just because someone has health does not mean that God has his approval on their life. God isn't looking for righteousness that looks good. God is establishing a righteousness that is good. What is the difference between those two things? A righteousness that is good does the right thing, whether it's popular or not. Whether it makes sense or not. God isn't that worried about your reputation. He knows that his reputation is what matters. And that the more you contribute to his glory, the more your reputation will be established. And so God's law has a purpose and a focus, and that is a better righteousness. Lastly, I'll say, because I have to end at some point. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep for they're really vicious wolves. Uh, you can identify them by their fruit. That is... By the way, they act. Do you see that Jesus had a lot to say about what we actually do? Not about what we think. We call it theology, but I've argued for a long time that your theology is what you actually do, not what you say. And so Jesus said, you can tell by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit, chopped down, thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Jesus talked about sheep and goats in the kingdom. Talked about a day when he's going to cull them, separate the sheep from the goats. And so as we think about this, there's a whole lot of people in some kind of war nowadays to try and identify the wolves. They have uh, these amazing YouTube channels and very dramatic presentations about who's right and who's wrong out in the world. And I really think that stuff's a waste of time. I think your concern with sheep and wolves is in the house, your body of fellowship. 
I think it doesn't matter what some big famous person with a platform does. I think is what matters is what happens in the house that you worship within and the body that you worship within. So why do I say that? Well, sheep don't growl. Sheep don't attack other sheep. Sheep don't kill other sheep. Now you're sitting there going, well, listen, I've been to church and I've seen all that stuff happen. There are wolves among the sheep. What is the evidence of a, of a Christ follower or someone who's not? It's an issue of fruit. So let me wrap up with some, some very important ideas about fruit. And I'll tell you what, I'm not going to uh, tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what Paul think, thought, and what the Holy Spirit revealed to him. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you, man. Oh, I mean, let me tell you again. As I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the fruits of the flesh. If that garbage is coming out of your life... It's because you're eating the wrong things. You're hungry for the wrong things. That's, that's how you tell a sheep from a goat or a sheep from a wolf. It's what's coming out of their lives. I, um, I have this question. I, I want to ask people, but it's a little rude unless you have a relationship sometimes. Uh, you, know, you ever have someone, you know, and they kind of just come and dump on you because they're angry about what's going on or, or they know how to fix whatever the problem is. The question I always want to ask, and I actually ask myself of this, it's an uncomfortable question, but it's this. What fruit is that? Is that lying, jealousy, dissension? Uh, is it lust? Is it greed? Is it all these things that come from the sinful nature? What fruit is that? Because the fruit tells you the root. The fruit tells you the root. And I don't want those things in my life. By the way, that's why we need the body of Christ. Because if that stuff's coming out of my life, I need someone who has a relationship with me close enough that can say, hey, brother, and come alongside me gently, lovingly, not all of you, and say, that's the wrong fruit, man. See, that's what the body's for, to help us walk in righteousness. Not just to hand us judgment when we goof up, but to help us walk in righteousness. That's the Christian way, is that we don't just judge each other, we help each other. Does that make sense? What are the right fruits? Well, we talk about them all the time, but let me run through them again because they just sound so good. The fruit of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness. Gen oh, I'm sorry, I got hung. Stuck record. And self-control. That is not the list we want, is it? <laughs> We'd like the fruit of the Spirit to be other control. We would like to be able to control others by the power of the Holy Spirit. We would like that very much. We pray that way. Oh, Lord, please fix my children. Make them do exactly what I tell them. There's no law against these things. This, this is the fruit that we're looking for in our lives and in our church and in our community. That's how you tell sheep from wolves. How do you get there? Huh? What is the, the, uh, the end of all these things? Well, it's actually about hunger. It's all about hunger. Because uh, as my, my daddy used to say, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. 
and what we feed our souls and what our hearts nourish themselves upon, that's what will come out of our lives. And so if we live from the earth as Adam did, then these fruits of the flesh have no choice but to rise. But if we live from heaven as Jesus did, then these fruits of the Spirit will stir up in our lives. It's interesting to me that Jesus talked about hunger. And then in Matthew 6, he talked about fasting. Obviously, those ideas are connected. He says in in Matthew 6, 16, and when you fast. Notice he didn't say if. He said when you fast. Do you know what fasting is? Fasting is the slowest thing in the world. Whoever picked the word fasting (laughs) to talk about it? I don't, they, they're like mean. They're like, oh, you'd think this will be over quick, but it's not. An hour of fasting is like two weeks in the real world. <laughs> fasting is when you go without nourishing your body. And, and there's different ways you can fast, but you go without physical nourishment. And when you do it in the kingdom, why, the reason you're doing that is to connect with your real hunger. Because trust me, you are not hungry for pizza. Or chicken or barbecue. Okay, maybe barbecue. You're not hungry for that. You're hungry for your father. So Jesus says, when you fast. And he says, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. So here's my conclusion challenge for today. Connect with your hunger. Connect with the fact that you're hungry for something you can't get here. You have to get it from the buffets of heaven. And that's what fasting is for, by the way. It's a very practical way, not just to make you grouchy, as it does me, but to reveal how much we rely upon this earth we are stuck on and that we do not rely enough on this heaven that we're headed toward. Does that make sense? And so, that is the attitude of hunger. It places the, the desire of our hunger with our Father and divorces it, separates it, uproots it from this earth that cannot supply. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for a willingness in this body to seek the kingdom. I thank you for a receptiveness to be able to talk about challenging ideas and things. I pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts to who you are as our greatest and deepest desire. I ask, Lord God, that you would release the false, the things that falsely seem to satisfy. And I pray that you would help us connect with your throne room and embrace who you are. I pray, God, that we would see that we are hungry today for you. And they would set us on a path and a trajectory to surrender our earthly ambitions and desires and hungers that we might have better and more heavenly ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.